It has come to our attention that a mysterious force is loose somewhere in outer space. Welcome to Talk Tank. Sponsored by the OVH Cloud Startup Program. This is Talk Tank, the official LSE Entrepreneurs Podcast. My name is Sia, and I will be your host for today. Welcome to our Unwrapped series, where we are focusing on the intersection of creative thought and entrepreneurship. Roy Baumeister is the president-elect of the International Positive Psychology Association and professor of psychology at the University of Queensland, Australia. He completed his undergraduate degree and PhD at Princeton, and he has worked at institutions such as Stanford and the Max Planck Institute. He has published over 40 books, and his work has been widely featured in outlets such as Dateline, NBC, PBS, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. Roy, I'm, I'm very happy that you're here. It's actually a conversation I've been looking forward to. I've enjoyed your work for a while, and I'm happy to tell the audience about that in a moment. But just to set a little bit the scene for everyone who's listening, what I wanted to explore today was your work from a an entrepreneurial lens, but at the same time from a mental health lens, given just the intersection of your work in positive psychology and different domains, as well as the fact that, you know, mental health problems, for example, depression have just a higher incidence amongst um, entrepreneurs. So I thought there's a very interesting conversation to be had there. And I thought I'll start in a couple of areas. One of them is self-esteem and you started your career working on self-esteem and it was a bit of a turnaround in, in your work. So initially there was a lot of enthusiasm that self-esteem might be an important component. And I remember reading one of your literature reviews where the conclusion was that, you know, self-esteem is not maybe that useful as promoting academic performance and that we may have gotten the causality a little bit wrong, that it's actually the other way around, that it is performance that causes self-esteem and not self-esteem that causes performance. And that frankly, anything we've tried to increase, anything that we've tried to increase self-esteem in order to increase performance didn't really work so much. Right now, Roy, entrepreneurs think a lot about self-esteem. They feel they don't have self-esteem. They feel they need to boost it. What's your take a little bit on that, given your background? Well, I have not had much uh, contact directly with entrepreneurs, although this week I'll be giving a talk at a, a graduate program that's really uh, oriented toward them. I would think they would have to have a pretty healthy self-esteem to start with, because when you're undertaking to create something new and taking the chances and building potentially a great business, uh, you have to have confidence in yourself uh, that you can do it. If you're riddled with self-doubt, you probably would never even get started there. And uh, I understand too, great many business startups fail. Many people succeed after a couple of failures. Well, that, that kind of thing is a hallmark of high self-esteem. Low self-esteem people, when they have a first failure, they're often very discouraged and they, they give up or they, they settle for just trying to, to be barely adequate. Whereas the high self-esteem person says, no, I can do better. I can come back uh, the next time and, and do something different. I'll learn from my mistakes. And I still think I have the potential uh, to succeed. So I would uh, suspect, although 
you know, we all doubt ourselves from time to time, but if you could get a, a valid reading of the self-esteem, I would suspect entrepreneurs would be uh, mostly on the high end. And th there's always a question that, that I found always difficult is like, how concerned should you be with something? And, and in my experience, sometimes we get it wrong. We are too much concerned with the wrong things and not enough concerned with, with the right things. Yeah, with self-esteem, I think it was an honest mistake that psychology made there because self-esteem is correlated with a lot of positive things. And so it was reasonable. I mean, trained researchers should know you can't uh, leap to causation from correlation, but it was very tempting for many people to look, oh, look, people with high self-esteem, they're doing better in school and they say their relationships are better and they have all kinds of positive things. The causality, when you track people over time, was mostly the other way around, that uh, high self-esteem comes from being successful in school. It doesn't really cause it. Now, there is some hereditary aspects, some inner aspects to self-esteem, and they sort of do at least predict feeling good about yourself. So one of the studies that, that responded to, to our our survey of the literature saying self-esteem doesn't have much causal stuff. Uh, they tracked people over a long period of time and they said, oh, well, yes, it does. Look, self-esteem at time one can predict good things at time two, but what it predicted was being happy with it. So your self-esteem didn't predict you, how your salary would be, but it predicted how satisfied you were with your salary. Or it didn't predict, I forget what else, how popular you are, but how satisfied you are with your relationships. So there's an element of it of just sort of a, everything is great, including my self-attitude versus the low self-esteem is sort of negative about self and world and everyone else. So subjectively, it, it does make a difference. But in terms of actually improving outcomes, we couldn't find much evidence that self-esteem did it. There are two things it does, which are both relevant to initiative, to entrepreneurs. One is initiative that people with high self-esteem are more likely to speak up or take action themselves or just in general, be active rather than passive. So again, that, uh, that fits into it. And it's also this stock of good feelings. Uh, so when things go bad as they do <laughs> pretty much all of us at, at one time or another, the low self-esteem person is often, oh, this is awful. I'm devastated. I, I don't know what to do. I give up because they don't have this stock of good feelings, but the high self-esteem person said, well, that failed, but I'm pretty good and I can have a positive outlook and uh, we'll give it another try. I uh, will come back. It uh, enables you to feel better about yourself and about life in general. So happiness uh, goes with higher self-esteem for good or ill. Uh, again, somewhat independent of actual circumstances. You know, back then in, in, in the very article that was reviewing academic performance and self-esteem, you, you were discussing the buffer hypothesis of self-esteem. And I think at that time you, you said, it's interesting. We still have to look more into it to see what happens. And it relates to this point that you made about if something bad happens, let's say you're an entrepreneur, you get rejected, maybe self high self-esteem will protect you from it. Um, what, what's the current understanding we have of that? Yeah, well, the, the buffer hypothesis, I haven't looked at it for a while, but we looked at it very closely back when I was doing the review. So what that suggests is that when that self, high self-esteem is a buffer against uh, the negative effects of, of failure and, and bad things. So what you'd find is that when things are going well, high self-esteem and low self-esteem people would do about equally, but when things go badly, high self-esteem people would have an advantage and do better. I mean, that's, that would be the buffer at work. 
And there were some studies that fit that pattern just beautifully. There were also some findings that kind of fit a very different one that it's more that low self-esteem poisons the good times that, or that everybody suffers when things are really bad. Uh, but when things are good, the low self-esteem people aren't as happy as the high self-esteem. There were also some findings that high self-esteem just did better in general, in terms of coping and all that, but regardless of good or bad. And there were some that found no difference. <laughs> so it was quite a jumble. On the other hand, there were no findings that low self-esteem people were better off. So apparently we hadn't figured out exactly what the formula is or what the general principle, but there is an advantage when there's a difference, high self-esteem people do better and, and often there's no difference, but when there is, it, it's that way. So low self-esteem does not appear to bring benefits there. Now that's different from humility, which does seem to have very considerable benefits, but uh, psychology is having a very hard time figuring out humility, how to study it and how to measure it. You can't just ask people, are you humble and have them say yes or no. So, but there's something of an attitude of of respect to others and uh, thinking you're not special, but life is good anyway. So, uh, humility, I, I believe in is a positive thing. Low self-esteem is probably not, uh, worth cultivating for its own sake. Another point we found though, is that people who score low self-esteem are objectively what we call moderate self-esteem. I mean, you measure self-esteem by asking, are you successful? Are you did you get along well with others? Are you a morally good person and so on? Um, and so the people, and then the researchers take all the scores and kind of divide them in half and say, high self-esteem is above the median and low self-esteem is below, <clears throat> but the median is high or is, is above the midpoint. So the high self-esteem people, the people who end up scored as high self-esteem are really saying, yes, I'm really good at things. And the low self-esteem people are not saying I'm bad at things. They're saying, oh, maybe sometimes to some extent, I'm sometimes good, sometimes bad, not sure, mixed back and forth. So low self-esteem is really not the presence of a negative view of self so much as the absence of a positive one. One of the things, Roy, that for the listeners, I mean, one thing that I found very useful was to think about willpower in terms of your muscle metaphor. And I found that very useful in a variety of ways, because one, it means that you can tire your muscles out so that in some ways it's about conserving energy. And I think one of the findings in one of your studies was that the people who are most successful at executing the things that they wanted to execute were not necessarily the people with the strongest amount of willpower, but they were the people who avoided temptations. They designed their lives in such ways. Yes, because a second line of work, we, we looked at personality differences. We all know some people have better self-control than others. And yet everyone has the same amount of glucose on average in your body. Is it somehow that these people mysteriously have a greater supply? Well, no, they don't have more willpower. They just use it better uh, and they manage it. They cut back if there are future demands uh, that they want to save for. There's a sort of an interesting thing. We, we started, we've mainly done laboratory research on this. So we administer a depleting effect in the lab. We have people perform a, a task that will use up their willpower, like watch a funny movie and don't let yourself laugh, keep a straight poker face or anyway, there are a variety of uh, tests we can do to deplete people's willpower. And then we measure something else. And so we said, well, let's see once we 
develop this trait scale to sort people into high and low self-control who gets depleted more. And theoretically it could go either way, be the, the people with high self-control had farther to fall or people with low self-control were worse off to start with. So they probably collapse better. Very consistently, we found no difference that people high and low self-control get depleted to the same amount in the lab. Then we did a study out in the world where we had people report on their feelings of depletion and what was happening. We would, one of those things where you beep them several times during the day and what are you doing right now and how do you feel and all that. And then we found that people with low self-control reported feeling depleted a lot more. So hmm, what's the difference in the lab? We get no, no effect out in the world. We get a big effect for personality traits. Well. The difference is in the lab, everybody does the same task for the same amount of time. We deplete people, you know, here, work on this for 10 minutes where you have to inhibit your uh, responses or uh, control yourself. Okay. That affects everybody the same. Out in the world, people with low self-control are often digging themselves out of holes that they dug themselves into. They create problems for themselves. So like you said, avoiding temptation is a lot easier than getting yourself into a, a very tempting situation. Uh, and so if you let yourself get into that situation, you get tempted and you give in, then you have to deal with that. Or if you're trying to quit smoking or drinking and you have a lapse, that greatly increases the likelihood that you'll have a full relapse. You have a disagreement with your romantic partner or one of your colleagues at work, and you say some things you shouldn't say, well, then you've got to repair the relationship and deal with that. Low self-esteem people make mistakes like that, or even basic things like not paying the bill on time or not getting your work in by the deadline. And then there are problems because of that. So yes, in the lab, everybody has the same amount of willpower, but out in the world, people manage their lives well or badly, and that creates a lot more demands for them. But the ideal thing I used to think People with good self-control are, you know, somehow these, these pinnacles or, uh, paradigms of, of virtue, of very strong characters and able to always think things through and do the right thing. But really what it's like to have high self-control uh, is you work through habits, you break bad habits, you form good habits, and then life kind of flows automatically and goes pretty well. I think uh, a, a fascinating part of your work was that you looked at willpower also in relation to decision-making. Yes. That was another big step uh, forward there. I, uh, I remember kind of figuratively holding my breath to see how those studies would turn out. So that's become known as decision fatigue and, and sponsors the same thing, the same sort of effect. Now we looked at them going back and forth. Like the decision researchers are just interested in the decision part and got the idea of one of my, uh, postdoctoral fellows, uh, Jing Twangy was, was getting married and she did the bridal registry thing where you go to a fancy store and you pick all the presents that you'd like to have. And so she, boy, by the time I walked out of there, he said, you could have talked me into anything. She said, I just felt so wiped out because you have so many little decisions to make. What kind of spoons do you want? What uh, design should be on your gravy boat? What, which toaster uh, do you want to have? So it was just decide, decide, decide. One of my colleagues said the same thing about he had to have some serious renovations done on his house. And he suddenly had to form attitudes about lots of things that I didn't care about, but you have to decide, you know, exactly what uh, kind of molding is going to go around at the, 
the top of the walls in the building or something. He never looks at them and doesn't care what they, but you still have to choose. Making all those decisions was, that was quite exhausting. So yes, in, in, in the talk I give, I mentioned that some various leaders have picked up this idea and they say, I just going to wear the same clothes every day, eat the same foods or have somebody else decide for me, but I want to conserve my energy for making the difficult decisions, which is part of my job. I don't want to wear myself out deciding what to wear, or what to eat. I think that was uh, President Obama's line at one point. And I think Zuckerberg, the Facebook guy and several others have adopted uh, similar procedures. So they seem to think it work, works for them based on our research. It, it, it should work. It's, it's, it's a reason I think at a, at a lower level, most people have a morning routine. <clears throat> you could make your decisions each morning. Are you going to take a shower first or have breakfast first? And what are you going to eat for breakfast? Well, you could eat anything in the world, but no, most of us get up in the morning at about the same time and do the same things in the same order because that conserves your energy uh, for the day. A lot of us been working at home the last couple of years, but when you commuted, you commuted by the same procedure, drove the same path. If you're driving a car, took the same bus. Again, habits don't require willpower. You need habits. You need willpower to establish them or to break them. But when habits are working smoothly, they take all the load off it. And, and that's one of the marvelous things about the human mind is designed to the things to become automatic. It's a bit like learning a skill. Uh, think of learning to play tennis or something. You have to pay all that attention to exactly how you position your feet and how you hold the racket and how you move your shoulders and all those things. But an expert tennis player isn't thinking about all those because those have become automatic. You, you put conscious effort and, and pour your willpower into, into establishing those automatic responses. And then they carry you through to the, uh, the championship. And in the, in the big game, you're using your willpower to, uh, keep up the pressure or to analyze what's up with your opponent or strategize or uh, fight the fatigue that's coming on, uh, use it constructively there. You don't have to use it for how exactly should I hold my racket and uh, am I moving my feet too slowly? But you know, at, at the LSE, a lot of people want to work in finance. And if you want to work in finance, then you work 16, 18 hours days and you sleep maybe three hours. So it's just assumed that you have to sacrifice that. And, and there's not much of a belief that that will impair your productivity in any way. Well, there are different kinds of tests and some will be impaired and I, it's possible that some will not. Uh, I'd like to see the, if you still have the folder of those findings, the things that are impaired by, by sleep, it's, it's something I've never done sleep research myself, but it shows up as important and the. The, the depletion study we did where people were out in their daily lives reporting on their, their feelings and their activities and so on. It was strong links. It was even more the quality of sleep than the quantity. Although if you get down to five hours uh, or less, then that, that kind of warps you. That That's really not healthy. I consider it one of the blessings of my life that for most of my adult life, I could just sleep till I woke. So eight or nine hours was, was typical. Lovely review to look forward to. Baumeister's review on sleep, which things are impaired and which things are not impaired and what's the evidence base behind it. I mean, I think. Yeah, that would be, uh, that would be a, a good, good project. Sleep is, uh, so there's many different positive effects on the mind and the body. People who sleep, but don't dream as much, you know, they have psychological issues. Anyway, it's, it's, uh, it's not an area I've looked at and can't uh, talk about as, uh, as any kind of expert now, but 
sharing our data, getting enough sleep is, is important. Your potential take on this issue, and again, maybe you have a take on it or, or no. And I found the idea of intermittent fasting has become very popular. A lot of high powered people are doing it now. And I know that around your work and glucose, th there might be a couple of things that you have to say what intermittent fasting may mean in terms of, you know, willpower or the quality of your decision-making. Do you have any thoughts on intermittent fasting? I have not really looked into it. Any discipline like that, where you deny yourself, it could have the character building aspect. So during the fast, you might not be at full power, but intermittently fasting on a regular basis, just like any other self-control exercise will, will gradually strengthen the muscle. So you'll be better able to deal with other things. Depriving yourself of food, which is what fasting is, means that there's no, no new fuel coming in, no new energy are being taken in uh, by the body. So it will be inclined to conserve, which means I would speculate the decision-making might not be as good. Uh, the mind, you, you'd certainly have to work hard to overcome the tendency for the mind to make shortcuts. In our research on decision fatigue, we looked at how decision-making changes when people are, are depleted. So they're they're more willing to postpone a decision if they can, because making a decision takes energy. So, well, I'll, I'll keep looking, I'll decide tomorrow, I'll put it off. They make, they don't compromise as much. So a compromise is a complex kind of way of thinking about things where you integrate different information. Even something like uh, price and quality, a compromise is looking for the sweet spot where you get a uh, pretty good quality, the, the most quality for your money. But when people get depleted, a decision fatigue, it's, it's more, give me the cheapest or give me the best. They essentially pick one dimension and just maximize on it. They don't trade them off and, and, and put them together. Another thing is you often have a lot of information vaguely relevant to a decision and some of it is more important than others. Some of it is even logically irrelevant. If you think through carefully, you can say, well, these are the crucial things. I'll make the decision on that basis. Again. The tired, depleted, decision fatigued mind doesn't want to put forth all the effort to do that. So it just kind of puts everything together and often ends up being biased by things that should be logically irrelevant. The decision researchers have come up with some very creative ways to, to show that effect. And it, it very much intensifies when they're depleted. More impulsive decisions, again, not exerting the top-down control, letting the more automatic impulses rule, rule the roost. So those are some of the, the patterns that go with decision fatigue. Basically the mind shifts toward simpler, easier ways of, of, of making decisions or the status quo bias is another, which is leave things as they are, even if, you know, it would make more sense to do something else, but making a change somehow is more mentally taxing than leaving things as they are, especially if the present is, is fairly tolerable. So that's, that's another sign to the, the general pattern. The depleted, fatigued mind takes shortcuts, doesn't think things through. And so the quality of decisions goes down and people are mostly unaware that that is happening. So that would be the thing to worry about on intermittent fasting, at least during the fasting day, you wouldn't want to make a huge decision when you haven't eaten anything for 20 hours or whatever, whatever the length is. Indeed, I had a paper with some lawyers who work with people and uh, negotiating and <clears throat> reconciling things like that. And they 
it's sort of a working out strategically managing when people should eat and when they shouldn't. Just uh, if people are disputing something, you want to have them air their grievances or put out both sides and then, then deprive them. But maybe at some point then take a break and give everyone a meal, which will replenish their, their, their powers of thinking and of, of self-control and might move it forward to a to an end. I'm not sure exactly what we decided was the optimal procedure for that, but it's something that, you know, certainly before our research came along, the people who worked with it already realized is, is a tool that the mediators can use to enable the, the two sides eventually to reach a mutually satisfactory agreement. Now, you know, the, the, the thing I'm thinking of, you know, you have such a breadth, you've spoken on so many topics, so many people have interviewed you. And, and to connect that with what I want to ask is, I work at a startup and we were pitching very recently. And when we were pitching and the Q&A started, I was hoping for somebody to ask a question that I thought was a very important question. And that's something we need to answer. But that, that question wasn't asked for, for a variety of reasons. I mean, you know, there's limited time. And I think maybe that's kind of true for everybody. There's like questions you wish somebody had asked you because they reveal something insightful or important that you've been thinking about. Is there any such question you wish somebody had asked you, but nobody has asked you so far? I think you've, you've got me. Uh, I mean, there are specific instances I'm sure it could come up with where I thought people didn't ask the key question, but as a general principle, uh, no, I don't have a. Just on the off chance that that's possible. Let me then turn it around in, in a slightly different way. And, you know, maybe that yeah. can't be answered in that way either, because it's a bit of a simplistic way of looking at it, but you have done a multiplicity of things. And now in a simple fashion, I could wonder, is there something that you felt is just more important than the other work you've done? Is there any particular area? Yeah done a great many things and some are more important than others, but picking one, I don't really know. We've, we've covered several of them. The, the self-esteem was a big a change in, in view for me. And I think that's, that's important. The self-control work in influenza, I thought that was good. I have another line of lab work for the last 20, 25 years on, on the need to belong and interpersonal rejection. So for me. I'm, I'm trying to get the big picture and so I need to get all the pieces right. So I'm pleased with several of the pieces that I found and that other people have found and I'm aiming for ever broader understanding. Uh, well, I would say, don't worry about that. We're going to cut out all the terrible questions I'm asking, <laughs> but let me then come to, to your current book. I'm, I'm excited about it. Because a little bit, I have a, you know, philosophical slash, you know, deep psycho psychological tendency. I haven't read it. Obviously it's not out yet. So I've, I've ordered it on, on Amazon. I think it will be released in about two weeks. I think the 14th of March. Yes. There, there's been some supply chain issues and right now there's a war, which might mess things up further. I think the ebook is available. They told me. Yes. <clears throat> so if people are, me as I'm getting older and my eyes aren't as good, I read almost everything on electronic books. So that's. That they can do, but the supply chain issues, the paper wasn't quite getting to where it needed to be or something like that. But yeah, it should be out in, in, in two weeks. Two weeks. Obviously, I mean, a lot of supply chain issues these days. I'm a little bit old fashioned, so I enjoy the, uh, the books. Tell us a little bit about it. Okay. Well, it's a really culmination of 
my efforts to understand the human self going back to when I was studying for my PhD in the 1970s. So it's multiple decades of work trying to pull all the different things together. I mean, we talked about self-control and self-esteem. There's self-presentation, how you manage how other people perceive you. There's how does the self fit into relationships and into society as a whole. So it's a big area and it's getting harder and harder to master. I thought I might be one of the last people who could write a grand book pulling it all together because just over 30 or 40 years, I've worked on many different aspects of the self. And so I don't have to read everything and be caught up on it just now. I can rely on what I learned when I studied it earlier. So uh, the foundation of my thinking in the last 20 years or so is that the human mind was created by nature for culture. That you know, we evolved to survive and reproduce. Everyone, every species has to solve those problems. And we solve them in an unusual way by participating in these really complicated societies where there are norms and rules and shared understanding. So culture is our biological strategy. It's how we survive and reproduce. And so all the features that set us apart as human beings that really define us, the essence of being human, are essentially the result of adaptations to make this new kind of social system possible to enable us to work in culture. And like I said, I'm working on free will now, well, free will, such whatever, whatever it is, uh, it evolved to enable us to participate in decisions with economic marketplaces and moral responsibilities and uh, sharing information and all the other things that, that go into a uh, culture, legal, uh, you know, obeying the laws and so forth. So uh, the self emerges very much for that, the human self. I mean, you'd say there's the beginnings of self in, in animals. The essence of the self, well, let, me, let me say this, psychologists argue about everything. They even argue about how many selves each person has. There's a, a line of thought that says the self is an illusion. There's no such thing. There's a line saying, well, you have a self, that's who you are. And then there are also the people say, well, you have multiple selves. You have lots of different ones. But the, the right answer is you have one. But the people who say there's no self, they don't really mean it. I noticed they still put their name on their books and articles claiming that there's no self. Well, and the people who have multiple selves, well, again, they have a valid point, but they're overstating it. The different versions of the self, you maybe act differently at home than at, at work more differently with your mother than with your beer buddies, but they're different versions of the same self. If you borrowed money, you still owe it. And if the person comes around, regardless of whether you're at home or your work, say, I need that $10 or uh, 20 euros or whatever, you still owe it. It, it. It's still there. It's not, I mean, everything in psychology happens in the brain. So the brain is there, but the brain is not really going to be explained. It. The brain learns to operate a role in the social system. So again, the shape of the self is partly determined by things that will enable society to, to work. I mentioned moral rules and economic trade, which are found in just about all cultures in the world, all human cultures and essentially no, no animal cultures. Well, the self learns to operate in those because those really make the system work better. It's abundantly clear from economic history that societies with good economic markets flourish much better than ones with poor markets. And when the market is destroyed or trade is impaired, then the quality and quantity of life go down. So, and trade, although the word culture comes from agriculture, as Matt Ridley recently pointed out, trade is 10 times older than that. We're talking like a hundred thousand instead of 10,000 years. So humans learned to trade very early in our 
in our prehistory, at least. Whereas again, animals don't do that. They, they, they can't even get the idea. So you think what happened to the human mind to enable it to participate in a society that could benefit from markets? The evolutionary advances for humans, there are two big ones, cooperation and communication. And both of those uh, culture is really about, uh, about those. Cooperation is working together for mutually beneficial things. And trade is one of those. It took me a while to realize that because we think of trade as sort of antagonistic that you know, if I want to buy and you want to sell, I want a lower price and you want a higher price and, uh, and so on. But what that analysis misses is that you do want to sell and I want to buy. And if we can find a price that's accessible to both of us, then we're both better off. Okay. Um, so the human self had to evolve or take shape so it can participate in social systems that will produce this kind of benefit is having trade, then lots of people are better off than they were. And even in, even in biological fashion, you've got a fishing village and a farming village and farming villages growing wheat or rice and the fishing village has fish. Well, they have more fish than they need, but if they can trade, then they're both better off because the, the, the fishing village gets some, some bread and the farming village gets some fish raise their diet, they're, they're both better off and they're both giving up something they have extra of that's very low value to them to get something they have a shortage of. So you don't need to tell you at the London School of Economics this, this basic thing, but it takes psychologists a while to appreciate that the mind had to evolve to be capable of participating in, in, in systems like that. So the self, the creation of unity is a big, big part of it, putting all the different pieces together. I think in, in evolution, one of the steps you can think of, of just simple animals, just moving around. I remember watching my baby learn to crawl. I was there the day she figured it out. And it's actually fairly complicated when you think what the brain has to do. It has to understand it has two, two arms and two legs and has to understand it controls all of them and then have a system that it's right hand, left knee, plant, left hand, right knee, move, and then reverse. So it's sort of diagonally switching back and forth, supposing a system for advantage. That's, that's kind of what the self is. There's a, a, a small version of, a, of it, imposing a system to create unity. Now, a big thing with humans, unlike most of the other animals is continuity across most animals live in the here and now, if they think about the future at all, it's just a few minutes ahead and fairly strict expectancies. You can't really ponder the multiple uh, possibilities, but. We create unity over time. Again, this is useful for social systems where you have a job, you have a moral reputation, you have a police record, you have degrees that you learned in your education uh, or whatever. The continuity across time is really uh, a crucially powerful way for the system to benefit. But again, the human self has to be up to the job. It has to understand that what I do today will have consequences on me years from now and may also be constrained by something that happened a week ago or five years ago. Um, the integration remains incomplete. Nobody's perfectly consistent or, or unified, but it's good enough to enable the system to work. So anyway, that's, that's some of the stuff on the self. I, I have enjoyed all the previous books. I have learned a lot from the previous books. The inter interesting thing about reading any book is, is thinking about how can you take it away and apply it. And uh, I mean, I, I found there's always a variety of phases, remembering it, applying it. And technically it doesn't even remember if you remember it, if you know, you, you only apply it 
So it's very much、um, something I actually look forward to. This this was a great conversation. I'm very happy we had it, and I think every every listener is going to walk away with with something useful. So thank you for for being here, Roy. Very much appreciate. All right. Well, thank you for、uh, having me on. It was a great、uh, conversation, and good luck going forward. And that's today's episode. Thank you for tuning in, and see you next week.